feel like you were born in the wrong era? Do you pine for a time gone by? Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Kaya Handley. Welcome to This Retro Life. The best part about living a modern, vintage life is there are so many ways to find your people, to find your tribe, festivals, social media, mutual friends, even online selling sites like Etsy. And in my time trawling the internet for vintage finds, I stumbled upon Killer Kitsch and her vintage sewing and knitting patterns and I knew straight away that I had to meet her and find out her story. So I did. And here it is. Lizzie, thank you so much for joining me on This Retro Life. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. What's really inspired your love of vintage, your vintage passion? It started actually when I was very young between my great grandfather, who was a avid collector of mail order catalogs, like from the early 1900s up. And I used to obsessively supervise by him, by him, of course, but I obsessively went through these catalogs and I got hooked on the 1920s. As a young kid, I was like, constantly bugging my mom to dress me like a flapper. (laughs) I was going to be a flapper, you know, and and these beautiful 1920s uh, gowns and dresses and the hair and the the hair pieces and everything. And uh, that's where it started was my great grandpa, Bill. Did your mom dress you as a flapper? She did. Actually, my mom liked to uh, actually sew our clothes. She was a seamstress, like a self-taught seamstress from the beginning. And she was like, sure, I'll make you a flapper dress or, you know, whatever you want, whatever costume you want. She was willing to do it. So she, you know, enabled me. (laughs) What do you remember seeing in those mail order catalogs that just struck a chord with you? One of the biggest things was in the individual outfits, like, because there were mostly illustrations um, at that point, the colors, the greens and the the oranges and the reds, and then the big sashes and the lace and the way that the illustrators dressed up the model with like, you know, these beautiful brooches and these gorgeous headpieces with feathers sticking out and ribbons and flowers. Like it just, it was like this beautiful costume that I knew I could wear. So that's what really drew me to those illustrations and those catalogs was just the beauty of the color and the flourish that went with it. From 1920s, how did that style evolve for you as you grew from a young girl into into a young woman? So I went through some phases, like as a young kid, I was, you know, wanting to be the flapper. And then I kind of went into a tomboy phase at one point, you know, it was like jeans and t-shirts. But then in my teen years, growing up in a small town, I was already sort of a an individual who stuck out like a sore thumb. And I thought, well, you know, let's kind of amp that up. And I started dry, like I, one day I would dress Edwardian style. The next I'd have like a 1950s hairstyle, like I would do everything I could to sort of stick out and <laughs> using vintage style help this, this you know, crazy teenager who uh, wanted to stick out in a high school with a population of 400. <laughs> I love how diverse that is to go from Edwardian one day to 1950s the next. You must have had a lot of fun. I had, well, I've always loved dressing up. That's been my big thing. And like, I'd take a picture, I'd look at a picture of something. And I'm like, today I'm going to dress like you. And then maybe the next night I was watching a a 1950s movie with my dad and I'd be like I want to dress like her tomorrow (laughs) you know that's usually how things got started so a little bit different from most teens though who are trying to fit in to slide back into the crowd well most kids want to disappear into the crowd I mean when you're a teenager you're already going through enough (laughs) you know your hormones and you're angsty and you're you know 
trying to fit in with the crowd and I was not into a lot of things that regular teenagers were in. Like I was reading uh, classic novels and I was already into the, the horror scene at that point. And, you know, when you're in a small town, that already makes you stick out. And I loved it. I loved, you know, standing out because of what I was wearing from everybody else who was wearing like, you know, concert t-shirts, plaid shirts and ripped jeans. Man, you need to talk to every teenage girl in the world right oh. now and be like, it's okay. <laughs> Just love what you love. It's fine. Okay. You'll be all right. Stay, Stay weird. <laughs> Stay weird. Well, that's the thing. Like that, that was my thing too. I, and I said that a lot. Stay weird. Be weird. Embrace your weirdness, <laughs> you know, which, you know, in the vintage world, even in a big city, you have to embrace that weird a little bit because um, you do get looks when you're dressing like full on, you know, rockabilly or full on pin up or full on 1920s, you know, you're going to get stares and, and whatnot. You and I now and so many people listening were full on vintage nerds. When you were a teen and, and started dabbling in this, were you also getting into a bit of the history and the knowledge behind what these looks, what this extent? fashion exterior meant yeah I've always been a little obsessed with the history of vintage well with eras actually not not vintage in particular and um, especially the 1930s as I got older uh, just because Canada has such a, div- a really diverse history during the depression in the cities and then you know in our in our version of the midwest which are the western provinces like the dust bowl affected us as well and the politics in the 1930s in Canada were really interesting too and um, I'm also a b-movie fanatic so that ties in too where I'm like you know wanting to know the history of when this movie was made and what the costumes are and you know how they made the movie or how they did the sets so I'm a bit of a history nerd too. So where have you settled these days when it comes to ears and and fashion? Well for my body type I'm a curvy girl. I tend to look best in late 40s early 50s you know the fit and flare you know because I got the hips so I would love to be able to dress 1930s unfortunately just doesn't flatter my figure. At one point I embraced the whole rockabilly community too because I mean I poodle skirts and fit and flare dresses and the big hair you know I mean (laughs) the cat eye glasses like it's just that's totally me now so. You can't go wrong really. (laughs) No. I can't. And there's a, you know, we're lucky in Toronto because we have a really um, fairly decent uh, vintage community, but we have a good amount of rep- reproduction stores, you know, that sell reproduction dresses. So tell me a little bit about the vintage scene in Toronto. It's kind of like come in waves, you know, where it's like very pot, like big, and then it kind of shrinks down for a while. And now it's growing again. Like the rockabilly scene here is really growing again. And the tiki scene, I notice is just like exploded recently. Right. To help, uh, there's a lot of restaurants uh, and bars that are opening within those themes too, right? So it's encouraging people who might be on the fence about vintage to actually go check out what's going on and the music and the way other people are dressed. And um, we also have Toronto Vintage Society, um, which has a website which is like chock full of resources, like you for restaurants, stores, events. Excellent. Now, as you were saying, it all started with your your grandfather who was collecting those mail order catalogs. Have you become a collector? Not of a lot of the mail order catalogs. Probably a couple years before he passed away, he uh, reproductions of those catalogs started coming out. He um, actually got me one from 1901 and one from 1927. So I do have a couple, but what I collect <laughs> are vintage knitting magazines um, and things like photo play, like vintage pulp magazines, those kinds of things is what I'm more drawn to. And the photo plays from like the 
20s and 30s, which talks about the actors and usually have some uh, fiction within the fiction stories within them too. And, and the ads, oh my God, the ads just kill me. What sort of things do we see? Anything from like, you know, how to keep your house clean to laxatives to cigarette <laughs> ads to you name it. Like they're just bizarre and hilarious. Oh, it's interesting to see just how far we've come when it comes to commercialization. So true. <laughs> So I found you through your Etsy site, Killer Kitsch. Why did you start oh. the Etsy and, and the blog that goes along with this to share your vintage knitting and sewing? I wanted to share my knowledge of vintage or where to find resources or why I like a particular thing because I think a lot of people are on the fence about whether or not they want to do vintage or they're just kind of interested in reading about it or maybe they've been vintage for a long time and they're like, well, where can I find this? So having resources and just, you know, my love of it in a blog was my dream. And then I started my store because I have stacks and stacks of these beautiful knitting patterns. And I know through Instagram, for instance, I found a knitting, vintage knitting community on there. And I thought, you know, I need to share these patterns so that I can get as many people as I can knitting vintage patterns. <laughs> <laughs> and because they can be hard to find sometimes. So if, if you've got a yeah. good little stockpile, sharing it is part of passing on good vintage karma, I think. It is. And they're a lot of fun. Vintage patterns to knit them are partly um, a mystery or a puzzle because um, you have to figure out like there's terms used uh, in the 20s, for instance, that aren't used in knitting now. So it's like this, you got to go on this like treasure hunt to figure out what a certain term means, or they will use different techniques that we don't use anymore. So it's a bit of a challenge and a bit of an adventure. It's almost like a pick your own ending. <laughs> yeah, no, it truly is. <laughs> Be adventurous and actually, you know, alter. I alter patterns all the time, right? Yeah. Um, just because sometimes it might not fit me the way it was intended, but it is a it is a make your own ending. You can make it longer, shorter, long sleeve, short sleeve, don't have a collar, you know, whatever you want to do. Brilliant. And the more that you look at these patterns and, and try them and read them, do you get a better sense of just what they might mean and what certain terms, even if you've never heard them before, what they might mean in terms of the overall garment? Yeah, absolutely. So what happens is um, if you stick to an era, as an example, like if I was only just knitting 1930s patterns over time, you will start to see the same terminology used over and over and over again. And then five patterns down the road, when you see it again, you're like, oh, I know what that is. You know, PSSO, I know what that means, and, you know, things mm -hmm. like that. Although I got to tell you, between from 1930 to 1950, terminology starts disappearing or it'll change or structure of garments will completely change because the style is changing. If you're starting out in vintage knitting, it's best to stick to one era for a little while and, <laughs> and learn learn the terminology of that era before you move to the next one because you're going to get very frustrated. Also, I found there's just in, you know, vintage knitting patterns that I've picked up in thrift stores, I found there's a lot of assumed knowledge because back then every woman knitted, you know, so there was a base level of knowledge that we don't have now. It was just assumed that you knew how to cast on and the difference between a purl and a knit stitch. They didn't even tell you that sort of stuff. Well, there are patterns from the 1910s up to the 19, mid-1920s that don't even give you that much information. <laughs> I came across a couple of um, knitting books. One was 1917, I think, and one was, I think, 1912. Literally, this knitting pattern was, it showed you a illustration of what it was supposed to look like, the pieces, I mean, like not the finished pattern. Yeah. 
but it showed you illustrations of what the finished garment or pieces for the garment would look like and measurements. Yeah, they just said it. the words, good luck. Yeah, I, there, I think there might have been a couple of lines saying, you know, knit and garter stitch or something like that. And that would have, that was it. <laughs> and it was like, I'm looking at this going, oh, wow. <laughs> if I didn't know, understand what knitting was, I would be like, I would be tossing it aside and going, no, I'm not doing that. It's an but. incredible look at what is a craft that was so readily available though. Like the fact that they can print it with that little information, but everyone would yeah. understand it. Sewing patterns were the same way, like knitting or sewing patterns. It was just the shape of a pattern, no instructions, but that was, you know, every day for them. They would look at it and they would know that, you know, the arm went here and the yoke went there and, and didn't have to have instructions because they knit and sewed as a daily requirement or a need. You know, you had to make your own clothes. You couldn't necessarily walk into, you know, a Sears or a department store and just pick stuff off of a shelf, right, or off of a rack. You had to make it yourself. Have you been predominantly self-taught when it comes to knitting and sewing? When I was 10, my grandmother taught me how to knit. And, well, my mother tried before that and she just got frustrated with me. <laughs> but my grandma taught me how to knit. And my mother actually uh, taught me how to sew on a treadle sewing machine, which is those big, massive cast iron machines with the foot pedal yeah. that are manual. Yeah, that's actually how so my mother – I was – sort of self-taught but my you know my mom and grandma had partly to do with my education and then in grade I think five or six I think we started taking home ec up until high school and in home ec they would teach you how to do things like sew and also how to cook but I'm not classically trained I didn't you know go to university or, or college to learn how to sew mm -hmm. it's just my own education I think along the way. I think because it's not as ingrained in our culture as we're we're used to it being you know and fast fashion it's sometimes cheaper and far easier to just walk into one of those department stores, but there's not nearly the level of satisfaction as when you make something yourself, even if it's not perfect. I actually find it empowering um, to sew my own garments or knit my own garments, especially because for me to walk into a retail store and pull something off a rack, it's not going to fit me properly. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, because I've got boobs and hips. <laughs> and when I, you know, actually sew a garment, for myself, I can tailor that garment to fit me. And when I put it on, I actually feel good because it looks right. When you're working with vintage knitting patterns or vintage sewing patterns, how do they work with modern yarns and modern fabric? Like, is, is that an issue? Uh, it can be sometimes. Some patterns will say to you, uh, use, you know, fingering weight or double knit or worsted, whereas other patterns will go by a brand name. And a lot of the, you know, those brands of yarn aren't around anymore. But there's been a few people that have actually created these brilliant databases. One of them is actually on Ravelry, where they have researched um, a yarn, a certain yarn brand, to figure out what weight it is or what ply it is or whatever. And they've built this really amazing database, which I refer to all the time. As we see people's love of vintage increase around the world, are you finding it harder to find original vintage knitting and sewing patterns? Yeah, as, as people are discovering them, they are starting to disappear, <laughs> which is a good thing because that means that people are actually interested in, in vintage knitting, which is a good thing for me, especially as a seller. <laughs> um, but the quantity of magazines that used to be out there aren't there anymore because people are scooping them up. But good for them if they're doing the hunt because it is a treasure hunt to find them sometimes. I mean, sometimes 
they're on Etsy or eBay or, you know, online, but sometimes you have to go into charity shops or mm. antique stores and dig, you know, to find them so, or estate sales. There's nothing like that hunt sometimes when you just don't know what you're going to find and you walk away with an armful of magazines. Oh, I love it. We have, I'm not going to name it because I don't want everybody to go there. But <laughs> um, outside of Toronto that we go to probably once every three months or so. It's huge. It's in this massive warehouse. And it's a bunch of individual sellers of anything from dishes to clothing to, I don't know, clocks to whatever. But in in these individual booths, they'll, like, people will throw in magazines or just weird odds and ends, right? And I will go into each individual booth and, like, search through each one. I'm there for hours seeing if I can find any magazines stuffed in between the books or, you know, behind the maps or whatever like I will go and it takes me hours <laughs> <laughs> you have to wear your comfy clothes that day because you you've got your overalls on you've got a uh you know a toolman's belt that you can stick things in got yeah. a torch in there ready to go cart <laughs> <Or> something <laughs> We've talked knitting and sewing. We've talked about fashion. You you threw it out there a little earlier. Tell me about your love of B-movies. Well, tell me what a B-movie is first. Just to a basic introduction is they're low-budget movies. Majority of the ones that I watch are from the 1930s up to the 1950s. However, I mean, we still make B-movies to this day. They're just low-budget, not blockbusters, you know, not mainstream usually. My dad was obsessed with them when I was a kid, so I would watch them with him. And then now me and my fiancé, we actually have a monthly B-movie night that we run at a bar. (laughs) So there's sci-fi, there's comedies, there's romance, horror, you name it. It's a good night. Like, sit at home and watch some really old B-movies and, you know, and just make fun of them. Or, well, they're not always movies that you'd make fun of. But it's just a really interesting night. And, And to look at the costumes and the accessories and... Recently, we just showed Little Shop of Horrors, and I was drooling oh. over outfit that Audrey had on <laughs> from the nineteen the nineteen sixties, not the nineteen eighties one. And just every outfit that Audrey had on, were, it was just they were beautiful and perfect. And I was drooling the entire movie, even though I've seen it five times. I I couldn't get enough of her again, you know. Amazing. What but, is it in particular that you love? Because it's not always the best budget. Sometimes they can be a little bit cheesy. You can see things go wrong but they clearly haven't had the money to redo that shot (laughs) is that where you like the rawness of it I love that I love that part of it movies like Plan 9 from Outer Space as an example half the actors were also doing the lighting doing the set design doing the makeup financing it like Ed Wood was ingenious when it came to that he could get people to do five things and be an actor in his movie and, you know, his sets were just slapped up. Like, there's the scene in the spaceship where it's literally four walls and he threw curtains up. <laughs> and that's the interior of the spaceship. <laughs> or when you see the UFOs or the spaceships, like, you can see the actual wire holding them. <laughs> or, you know, the graveyard scene. Like, they walk through the same part of the graveyard ten times. You know, it's just, that's the beauty of a B-movie is it's slapped together sometimes, you know, and it's hilarious how awful it is, but at the same point, it's wonderful. And there's some great ones and some really good storytelling, and they, I guess they had a little bit more freedom than the bigger uh, movie cinemas to tell stories that reflect more the culture and the vibe of what was going on in that time. Well, also sometimes the person that was writing it was also the producer and the director and probably starred in it, so they had freedom to do whatever they wanted. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, 
it's a community too. I mean, people that are working on those movies are working together to make this movie happen as opposed to a huge studio just throwing money at them and just like do whatever you want, you know, just get it done, just use special effects where or CGI or whatever. Whereas back then it was like you you had you were on your feet and you're you're thinking on your feet and you're trying to figure things out from like, well, there's a piece of wood and some paper and some elastic. Okay, well, we're going to build a set with that. <laughs> <laughs> and make a movie, you know, and they did it. People can, uh, if they're in Toronto, they can find your movie nights, Killer Bee Cinema, or they can follow you and your sewing and your blog and your knitting at uh, Killer Kitsch. Lizzie, it's been such a pleasure to get to meet you. Oh, well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. And everyone should be listening to your podcast. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this episode of This Retro Life. You can find us on Wooshka, iTunes and Stitcher where you can subscribe and, of course, rate and review us so it's easier for other guys and gals to find this podcast. To get more information on today's guest, head to our website, thisretrolife.com or search This Retro Life on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We have some photos and videos and behind the scenes and a whole heap more retro fun, so do come and check us out. As always, if you're a vintage guy or gal from any era and into anything from cars to collectibles, we'd love to hear from you. Go to thisretrolife.com and drop us a line. Until next time, I'm Kai Handley. Thanks for listening to This Retro Life. 